Welcome to the Brain and Body Things Podcast. I'm your host, Natasha Mehta. I'm a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor, a medical doctor who specializes in optimizing quality of life despite pain or injury to the body. I treat conditions that require a combination of medicine, therapeutic exercise, and lifestyle modification. Through this lens, I've expanded my knowledge of health and wellness and am looking to share everything I've learned with you. This podcast and my website focus on the goal of helping you understand the brain and body in the simplest of terms. In my conversations with healthcare experts, we seek to provide actionable tips and tricks to enhance your lifestyle and optimize your life. Hey everyone, so we're going to try something a little different today. A break from our usual interview style content, I am going to give a lecture on a topic that I find super interesting. The topic today is actually adapted from a lecture I recently gave on exercise prescription. So I prescribe exercise all of the time, but I also work with people who have disabling conditions. So I want to start off by saying that I understand that you need a certain level of ability to participate in exercise and fitness. There is ableism in the fitness community, and we can always strive to achieve more access for people who are otherwise disabled. So I'm going to be talking pretty generally about the benefits of exercise on the brain, but my intention is never to offend anybody. In general, my opinion is that exercise should be individualized for each person. And so know for this talk, I am talking in general terms. Okay, so with that, let's get into it. The first recorded physician to prescribe exercise was a man named Susrutta. He was an Indian surgeon in 600 BC, and he prescribed moderate exercise. Later in 400 BC, Hippocrates, who we all know, a famous Greek physician, wrote the first written exercise prescription where he prescribed moderate exercise to warm, thin, and purge away humor. In 1899, A text titled Gower's Manual of Diseases of the Nervous System recommended a quiet life with exercise focused on range of motion and low intensity chair-based exercise for those with neurological diseases. In the 2000s, we started to see animal studies coming out demonstrating the positive results of high intensity exercise. Today, we have basic recommendations of how to exercise for health given to us by the American College of Sports Medicine and the CDC. So they recommend 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity every week and two times per week of muscle strengthening activities on two or more days of the week that work all major muscle groups. Now this is the bare minimum activity we should be doing for our health. In 2020, the CDC did a study which showed one in four men were following these guidelines and one in five women. That's 20 to 25% of people following these minimum guidelines. But exercise can be hard and confusing to undertake, right? So how often should you do it? How hard should you go? What type of exercise should you do? How long should you do it for? So this is what we think about in an exercise prescription. We have the FIT principle, frequency, intensity, time, and type. I also like to add on this idea of progression and variability when I'm thinking about an exercise prescription. A progressive program is really important to continue to build on the various components of fitness, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And variability is important because our body responds well to new stimuli and can feed back into more progression. It's beneficial to attack different components of fitness, improve motivation, and reduce overuse injury risk. Not all exercise is created equal. So yes, we want everyone to move their bodies, but from yoga to resistance training, cardio to dancing, these are all going to target different aspects of fitness. 
So the question isn't, do you exercise? It's how do you exercise? Because how you exercise can have important implications on your health and living independently for as long as possible. I've recently heard the scientist, Dr. Andy Galpin speak on several podcasts and shout out to him. I think he's really well-spoken and is doing a great job spreading awareness of these complicated topics and boiling them down to things that we can understand. So he talks about components to fitness and he has several that he lists. So I will list them now. So we have skill or technique, speed, power, which is force times velocity, force or strength, muscular endurance, which is specific to the individual muscle, muscle hypertrophy, which is the size of the muscle, anaerobic capacity as measured by maximum heart rate, maximal aerobic capacity as measured by VO2 max, and long duration steady state training or cardio. And because that is not enough for me, I have to add three more components, which are proprioception, flexibility, and postural control or core stability. So of all of these components listed, there are three that stand out in the literature as being predictors for independent living. And those are speed, force or strength, and maximal aerobic capacity. Clinical tests that these correspond to would be things like the timed up and go, which is a simple in-office test to test someone's speed, grip strength, which can be tested with a fancy thing called a dynamometer, and VO2 max, which is usually done in an exercise physiology lab using some piece of aerobic equipment like a bike or a treadmill while analyzing the air that you're breathing out. With that said, I would argue that all of the factors listed are important for independent living and health span. Health span is a buzzword I am hearing everywhere. So what is it? Lifespan is the years of life that you live, while health span is basically adding life to those years. For those of you who heard my podcast with Dr. David Katz on nutrition, I definitely stole that phrase from him. All right, so as we live longer, we experience a slow functional decline. This is in part due to age, but also in part due to disease and the slings and arrows of life. Eventually we reach a functional threshold where we can no longer live independently or do the things that we want to do. So if we just focus on prolonging lifespan, then sure, yes, we will live longer and we might have a little bit longer health span, but we will still eventually reach that functional threshold and perhaps even have a longer time where we're functionally limited before we die. Now, if we focus on improving our health span, then ideally we can improve our function for as long as possible, thereby shortening that duration where we are functionally limited with disease and disabled. Now, like I said before, trauma, injury, luck, genetics, it all plays in here, but I think in general, most people can agree that they want to live independently for as long as possible. And to do that, we really need to focus on our health span. Some people believe that exercise is one of the single best things that someone can do to improve their health span. And I am part of that group of people. I believe that good physical fitness is an essential contributor to optimal health span. But again, exercise can be hard to do, hard to engage in. And they've looked at this in the literature. Like what are the determinants for exercise engagement? And four things come out on top. Enjoyment, social engagement and support, exercise that is safe and adaptable, 
an exercise that you feel successful doing. And this is why I think that it is so important for an exercise program to be individualized because what I like to do might not be what you like to do. The type of support that I need around me exercising might be totally different from yours. Where I feel safe might be different from where you feel safe. And what makes me feel successful might be totally different from what makes you feel successful. So figuring out what you need in these areas is essential to getting engaged in an exercise program. And like I said, I think everyone who is able should be exercising. A sedentary lifestyle may be a stronger predictor of mortality than smoking, hypertension or high blood pressure and diabetes. This is according to the American Heart Association in 2016. But traditionally, when we think about exercise, we think about as helping the heart or helping the muscles or helping us lose weight. But exercise is also extremely important for our brain. It can enhance memory and learning, improve mood, promote neurogenesis or the process by which new neurons are formed in the brain. It can protect the central nervous system from injury and neurodegeneration. Neurodegeneration is what causes things like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. It's also been shown to increase brain volume. It does all this through the expression, secretion, and downstream signaling of things called neurotrophic factors. So things like BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or VEGF, which is vascular endothelial growth factor, and IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor 1. Now, another metabolite that is very interesting is lactate. It is no longer considered the, quote, dead end metabolite. As Dr. George Brooks put it, it is the phoenix that has risen from the fire. We used to think that lactate was this product that caused burning and cramping and O2 debt, waste production. It was a metabolic poison and just made us feel tired. (laughs) An acid that was a waste. But now we are realizing that it can have important implications when it shuttles through our body on cellular fueling, metabolic flexibility, regulating satiety or our hunger cues, the microbiome, which I won't even start getting into that right now. But in the brain, repeated exposure from regular exercise results in multiple adaptive processes due to this lactate shuttling. It can improve mitochondrial biogenesis, metabolic flexibility, increase VEGF and angiogenesis or blood flow, and it can increase BDNF. Now BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor is a very important neurotrophin that can enhance something called neuroplasticity via different pathways. So it does it via synaptogenesis, so creating new synapses between neurons, neurogenesis, creating new neurons themselves, and a concept called long-term potentiation, which is a process that involves strengthening of those synapses and leading to long-lasting signal transmission between neurons. This is very, very important, particularly for memory. Now, higher lactate concentrations are associated with increased levels of BDNF in our blood. So how do we increase lactate? High-intensity training. Current evidence actually indicates that high-intensity interval training evokes larger BDNF levels than when compared to moderate or low-intensity continuous exercise. Exercise also positively impacts our blood-brain barrier. As we get older, we experience increased permeability to the blood-brain barrier, and this is hypothesized to contribute to decreased brain resilience and plasticity. 
So not only age, but trauma, infection, inflammation, and any sort of central nervous system disease like stroke, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease can affect this permeability. Regular exercise is suggested to reduce the blood-brain barrier permeability, and that's a good thing. We do not want things getting through our blood-brain barrier. It's protective for our brain and spinal cord. So we think that exercise helps reduce blood-brain barrier permeability by decreasing systemic inflammation, reducing oxidative stress, actually improving the endothelial function and the tight junction integrity to really maintain that barrier, and by increasing capillary density or blood flow to the blood-brain barrier. Now, in thinking back to the concept of health span, not only is maintained cognitive function important for health span, but so is maintained physical function. So as we get older, we unfortunately experience something called sarcopenia, which is a decline in muscle mass. And depending on what source you look at, you'll see a variety of ages that it might start at. But in general, it starts way earlier than you think, somewhere in your 30s. There's also a concept called dynapenia, which is a decline in muscle strength. So strength can actually be a different measure from the muscle size itself. Strength takes into account the nervous system's integration with the muscular system. And studies have shown that the rate of loss of strength is actually two to five times faster than the loss of muscle mass. And dynapenia or the loss of strength is a more consistent predictor of disability and death. Modern day lifestyles and sedentary behavior are leading to what people call the quote, poverty of strength, even amongst young people. Now there are no effective pharmacologic interventions. There's no pill to treat dynapenia or sarcopenia. However, there is strong evidence to support the use of progressive resistance exercise because it impacts both the nervous and the musculoskeletal system. A Cochrane review in 2009 of progressive resistance training looked at over 6,000 individuals, over 100 trials, and found that progressive resistance training was effective at improving physical functioning in older adults with notable improvements in both hypertrophy and strength. Most of the training programs included two to three times per week of high intensity training. There was a meta-analysis in 2010, which showed that you could increase strength by focusing on intensity. And this intensity was actually defined by a percent of someone's one rep max, as opposed to, you know, a percent of their heart rate. So if they were moderately high to high intensity, which is like a 70 to just over 80% of your one rep max, they were able to increase strength that way. And they could increase mass or cause hypertrophy by increasing the volume or sets that the people were doing. Now, the rate of improvement with these type of programs actually decreases as you get older, but across the board, there is a net positive improvement with prolonged programming. So the point is, no matter what age you are, it is never too late to start this. So circling back to some key points, in my opinion, exercising for health and function should be individualized and structured. There should be components that address aerobic fitness, resistance training, balance and proprioception, as well as flexibility. When creating goals around exercise, they should be smart. That smart word refers to specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. But if structured exercise is not enjoyable, you'll need to get creative because some movement is better than no movement. And it's not just about the heart, muscle, and weight. It's also about the nervous system. 
And now because of this, I highly suggest looping in your healthcare providers to your exercise and fitness journey. I would start with your doctor and potentially work with a physical therapist before going out on your own or working with a trainer. As a physician who regularly prescribes exercise, when I'm assessing someone before their exercise program, I'm thinking about several different things. Does someone have pain, issues with their heart or lungs? How are they hydrating? How are they nutritionally fueling? Specifically, are they getting enough protein? How are they sleeping? That's really important for muscular repair and growth, but also the neurologic adaptations that we talked about. What kind of shoes are they wearing? It's especially important, especially in cases of proprioceptive loss or in cases where people need to monitor their feet. Socioeconomically, what can they afford? And then accessibility, what do they need? Do they have specific needs that can only be met in certain scenarios? So for me, this involves a comprehensive history and exam, maybe doing some imaging or labs, and then referrals if necessary to specialists. Okay, so before we wrap up, I want to go through some things to understand before implementing these ideas into your workout routine. So the first thing to understand is how to measure intensity. Depending on what activity you are doing, you might measure intensity differently. So it can be a percentage of heart rate max if you're doing an endurance type activity. So this is the highest heart rate that your body can achieve. This can be calculated by age or measured individualized to you. The next is a percentage of one rep max. So what is the heaviest amount of weight that you can lift for one rep in a given movement and using a percentage of that to achieve high intensity. The next is rate of perceived exertion. And there's several scales out there. The simplest one is just a simple one to 10. How hard do you feel like you are working? And the last, probably the easiest is the talk test. So if you are working at a high intensity, you cannot say more than a few words before having to pause for a breath. All right. So the second thing to understand is that high intensity durations are short. So bursts of activity, one common style is the Tabata format where you're working really hard for 20 seconds followed by 10 seconds of rest. But the truth is if you are really working at a high intensity, you are not going to be able to sustain that for minutes and certainly not hours at a time. The third thing to understand is that high intensity training should not be done every day. This type of training taps into fast twitch or type two muscle fibers, which need anywhere from one to three days to recover. And you should have variability in your workouts throughout the week that account for this need for a muscle to recover. The fourth thing to understand is that my high intensity may not be your high intensity. For example, I can do several burpees in a row, but my mom might have the same intensity challenge by walking up an incline with ankle weights, which is also much safer for her. So throw comparison out the window and do high intensity that makes sense for you. And this is again, where individualization and working with someone who is experienced and understand these concepts is very important. And the fifth thing to understand is that progression rates may be different depending on when you start your program. If you are untrained and you start exercising, you might see some amazing results very quickly. But once you become highly trained, the progress can slow in terms of the amount of weight you can lift and how fast you can go. Because people's bodies do have an inherent or genetic capability, and I truly believe this. Our bones, our skeleton that we are born with are only made to do so much to carry so much muscle to move a certain way so again please do not compare yourself this is your fitness journey and 
truthfully, very few people have enough time to devote to elite levels of fitness or sport. So until then, progression is key. Progression can be advanced by increasing the challenge or the amount of work or by simply changing the activity. And this has added brain benefits of enhancing cognition by new learning. All right. So that's it. I'll have to think of a better way to probably wrap up these lectures in the future, but please, please let me know if you enjoyed this type of content. You can let me know via social media or via my website. You can send me an email and I'd love to hear what you think and give you more in the future if that's what you want. Thank you for tuning into this podcast about all things brain and body. Please rate, subscribe, and review on whatever platform you prefer to tune into your podcasts. Also, feel free to share this podcast on any platform. This podcast is for general information and educational purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is meant to better help you understand your health, but does not serve as a replacement for medical services or care. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content of this podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine, including the giving of medical advice. Curious about more brain and body things? Find me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Dr. Natasha Mehta, and let me know what you'd like to hear about.